Hey everyone, my name is Jonathan Brook, and this is Eyes Only. The phone rings. On the other end of the line is a man who in just a few short months will be psychologically evaluated by the nation's top doctors. At his trial, his defense psychiatrist will take to the stand and testify that John Hinckley Jr. is driven by a disorder called process schizophrenia. Doctors at St. Elizabeth's Hospital will conclude that he suffers from a severe chronic mental disorder and that he remains a danger to himself as well as to others, specifically to the actress Jodie Foster. Yet, it is 1980, and no one knows who John Hinckley Jr. really is yet. There is just a nervous young woman on the other end of the line. Jodie Foster answers the phone call. Hinckley makes multiple phone calls to her Yale dorm room. In one call, he describes to Jodie the clothes she had been wearing the other day. In a separate phone call, he tells her the number of her dorm mailbox. She doesn't know him, yet for two days he has been leaving notes in her mailbox. The phone call transcripts reveal an ever-increasingly agitated Hinckley as Jody turns down his attempts to speak with her. The narrative in his head is not playing out the way he had envisioned it. He doesn't understand why Jodie Foster doesn't have an emotional connection with him. On one of the calls, Hinckley can hear people laughing in the background. He demands to know what they are laughing at, and Jodie tells him that they are laughing at him. Hinckley's attempts to make contact with her are failing. She refuses to meet with him in person. Right out of the pages of the script, from Taxi Driver, John Hinckley Jr. follows Travis Bickle's strategy to get her attention, to make him impossible for her to forget, someone has to die. A political figure, someone important, someone who cannot be ignored. Flying back to Texas, where his family lives, Hinckley purchases two revolvers. Almost immediately, he boards another flight, this time to Washington, D.C. It is late September 1980, and there is a presidential campaign going on. A fight for who will reside in the Oval Office. Hinckley checks himself into a hotel three blocks away from the White House. For a brief while, Jodie Foster gets relief from her tormentor as Hinckley begins stalking President Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter exits the Opryland Hotel. The people of Nashville have turned out in numbers to see the most powerful man in the world. The crowd of supporters turning up for him as he travels around the country will not be enough to re-elect the man. Carter does not know it yet, but he's going to lose re-election. He steps into the crowd and greets his supporters. The Daily Presidential Diary tracks an hour-by-hour, even minute-by-minute log of Carter's movements that day. You can find these public records 
for most modern presidents. Detailed notes of his interactions and the people he met with, they are kept by the Secret Service and National Archives. On October 9, 1980, Jimmy Carter's diary begins at 5 a.m. with a wake-up call from the White House signal board operator. From 6.33 to 6.34, Carter speaks briefly with the First Lady. One minute logged on the record. At 8.06, he takes off in a helicopter from the South Lawn. Marine One flies him to Andrews Air Force Base. By 8.23, he is in the air on Air Force One and heading to Tennessee. A long day of campaign events awaiting him. By 9.36, he is addressing a delegation of labor leaders who have met him at the Tri-Cities Airport in Bluntville, Tennessee. From there, he enters his motorcade and begins the event circuit for the day. This kind of accounting for time is invaluable for the historical record. It would also become significant to investigators working to piece together what had gone wrong. At 11.53, Jimmy Carter arrives by motorcade at the Grand Old Opry Convention Center. He addresses a crowd the Secret Service estimates to be about 4,400 people. It goes off without a hitch. At 1.28 p.m., the president leaves the Opryland Hotel and is greeted by a crowd outside. Hinkley tightens his grip on the revolver in his coat pocket. He tries to keep calm. The moment has come. In Dayton, Ohio, he had proven to himself that he could get close enough to kill the president. The truth is, he's nervous. Carter moves closer to where Hinckley is standing. He is not the best shot. He has patiently waited to plan how to get close enough. Hinckley makes eye contact. The cold eyes of a Secret Service agent stare back at him. Hinckley shrinks, losing his nerve. His target slips past him. At 1.45, Carter rejoins his motorcade. He had passed within an arm's reach of John Hinckley Jr. An arm's reach from a loaded revolver that was meant to kill him. If things had gone differently, if the same Hinckley that stood outside the Hilton Hotel that fired six shots into the crowd, if that Hinckley had shown up that day, the brief one-minute conversation Carter had with his wife that morning might have been the last thing they shared on Earth. It wouldn't be until much later that investigators found, to their horror, just how close things had come. Carter's tight schedule continued that day. He boards a plane that is always waiting for him. John Hinckley rushes to catch his own. He has not given up. He has a historic deed that is burning a hole in his mind. The next stop is New York City. The next place he can get close to Carter. Another chance at gaining the courage to pull the trigger. Hinkley walks through the Nashville International Airport. Inside his suitcase, three handguns and a pair of handcuffs are wrapped up in his clothing. 
He is running late. American Airlines personnel tell him to self-check his bags. At the South Concourse checkpoint, Hinkley places his bag through the x-ray machine. This exact moment could very well have saved the president's life. Hinkley never makes it to New York. For the first time, his parents realize something might be wrong with their son, as Hinkley is arrested on weapons charges. The FBI is notified of his arrest. A person with weapons and handcuffs traveling the same route as the president should raise alarms. A hyper and agitated Hinckley is handcuffed. Per the FBI's request, he is transported to the Metro Nashville Jail. What happened that day in Nashville would change policy on how the FBI handles weapons charges. Security officers who arrested Hinckley would testify under oath in front of Congress. Officer Darrell Long, who helped apprehend Hinckley, would testify that Hinckley seemed mentally off that day. Due to Hinckley's actions that day, the FBI would be available to be on the scene at the Nashville airport within 30 minutes of weapons being discovered by security. Sadly, all these changes would happen later. That same day, Judge William E. Higgins set Hinckley's bail at $62.50. All the shock and policy changes would come after Reagan is shot. A few hours after Hinckley's arrest, he posts his own bail and walks free. The reality is, it is 1980 in America. Thousands of guns are transported through airports on the regular. Hinckley had no previous record, no background of mental instability. His guns are confiscated along with a box of 50 high-velocity hollow-point bullets that explode upon impact. The same kind of ammunition that would in a few months explode the brain cavity of Press Secretary James Brady. The same kind of bullets that would come to a rest half an inch away from the president's heart. Inside Hinckley's bag, his diary lays out his plans. The smoking gun, perhaps that could have averted tragedy if law enforcement had just opened it. Hinckley returns home to his parents that are shocked and confused as to why their son is carrying firearms through airport security. They seek out a long overdue intervention. Therapy only works if you are honest. John Hinckley Jr. is not being honest. The woman seen across from him tries to get to the source of what is plaguing him. The movie Taxi Driver is never mentioned. Jodie Foster is never brought up. Joanne Hinckley knows something is wrong with her son, but she has no idea how bad it is. The psychiatrist she has hired diagnoses Hinckley with an emotional disorder. She convinces his parents that he is emotionally immature. Her recommendation is that they cut him off financially, force him to find his own way in the world. Hinckley's parents are wealthy. His childhood had been normal, if not better than average. His father was the chair and president of a successful oil company. Money was never tight. 
Hinckley had been elected class president twice, first in seventh grade and then again in ninth. In middle school, he earned the title of the best basketball player. He played quarterback and was heavily involved in helping manage the team. In high school, something would change. He became more and more of a recluse. Students referred to him as a non-guy, as in just a no one. His parents attributed the change to shyness. In reality, this is the turning point in Hinckley's life that led him to where he is now. Something profound changed inside of him. Hinckley picked up playing the guitar and grew a huge obsession with the Beatles. He would sit alone in his room for hours playing guitar and listening to the Beatles. John Lennon became one of Hinckley's greatest idols and someone he felt a strong connection with. After discovering Jodie Foster, Hinckley convinced himself that Lennon and Jodie were linked with each other in some significant way, creating in his mind an emotional and spiritual connection between both people he was obsessed with. His parents were the reason he was able to travel around the country so freely. They were the financial support that allowed him to have the time to pursue his wild fantasies. There is truth to the opinion that Hinckley had too much time on his hands. He was now being cut off. Per the advice of a psychiatrist, he was going to have to find a job. Perhaps it is possible that this intervention might have been enough to turn the tide of John Hinckley's life. Yet something terrible was about to happen. It would shock the entire world. A tragic event that would break John Hinckley and push him down a further path that would end in violence. On the tropical paradise of Honolulu, Hawaii, a man signs out at work. It is an act he has done many times, yet this time is different. He doesn't write his name. Instead, he writes the name of someone famous. With a 38 revolver and a copy of The Catcher in the Rye, Mark David Chapman flies from Hawaii to the mainland United States. That flight begins a trajectory that will end in murder. On a cold December evening, Chapman fires five hollow-point rounds into the back of his unsuspecting victim. In a daze, he stands there. The doorman of the Dakota shakes the gun from his hand. Tears streaming down his face, he kicks the gun away from the killer. He has just witnessed a good friend struck down in front of him. He yells at Chapman, Do you know what you've just done? Chapman responds, yes, I just shot John Lennon. Chapman is a block away from the subway stairs. He could be gone in an instant. Instead, he stands there. He opens a copy of the catcher in the rye that he has brought with him. He reads it until the cops arrive. On that sign-out sheet from a job he would never return to, he had signed his name as John Lennon. Yet he should have signed it Holden Caulfield because he is living out the life 
of a fictional character from J.D. Salinger's controversial novel, A Catcher in the Rye. The clock strikes 2 p.m. A crowd of nearly 50,000 people fall silent. Not more than a few yards away are the steps of the Dakota, its iron-gated archway now forever connected to Lenin's last moments. Where they stand will be transformed into a memorial to the music icon, a part of Central Park that will be renamed Strawberry Fields, a tear-shaped section of the park that Yoko Ono and her husband loved to spend time in. On December 14, 1980, tens of thousands of people stand for hours. They are there to pay their respects. Yoko is not at the Central Park Memorial that day. She has stayed home to pray. For ten minutes, a moment of silence is carried out at the request of the grieving widow. It extends beyond the park. Radio stations go quiet, and crowds gathered at memorials all over the world do the same. There to pay his respects that day is a broken-hearted John Hinckley Jr. The loss of Lenin causes Hinckley to feel suicidal. Yet, at the same time, he cannot help but find interest in the man who had pulled the trigger. Mark David Chapman had accomplished the sort of thing that Hinckley desired. He had forever linked his name with John Lennon. The media quickly portrayed Chapman as an obsessed fan. Yet there's more to the story. At the center of the shooting is a book that is one of the most censored books in U.S. history. Its protagonist, Holden Caulfield, is an angsty teen who suffers from depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. The author behind The Catcher in the Rye was forever changed by World War II. As a counterintelligence officer, J.D. Salinger saw firsthand the cruel evil the Nazis were capable of. When the war was over and many soldiers returned home, Salinger stayed behind. He went to work tracking down and bringing to justice the Nazi regime. His anger fueled by the death camps he had liberated. His work is still very classified. What we do know is that what he saw deeply affected him. J.D. Salinger chose not to speak about the 293 days of combat he experienced. Instead, he wrote the stories inside his head. Those that knew him say they see Salinger inside his characters, inside Holden Caulfield. An opinion that Salinger never seemed to appreciate. Salinger leaves behind a legacy of mystery. Many have argued that The Catcher in the Rye is not just a story, that it is a statement from the prolific author. One thing is certain. There is no substantial evidence that Salinger intended for his work to inspire violence. Inside Mark David Chapman's copy of The Catcher in the Rye, the killer of John Lennon 
had written a message. A message he signed not as himself, but as Holden Caulfield. Just four words. This is my statement. Within hours of shooting Lennon, Chapman would make a chilling statement to law enforcement. I am sure the big part of me is Holden Caulfield. The small part of me must be the devil. Whether John Hinckley Jr. saw the similarities he shared with Chapman is hard to tell. It is most likely the similarity in what Chapman accomplished that drew Hinckley's attention. It would not be long before John Hinckley Jr. picked up his own copy of The Catcher in the Rye. This story continues on my next episode. Thanks for listening.